Do you remember being there when Pearl Harbor was attacked? Yes, vaguely. I was a very young little girl, and my mother was ironing a dress for me, getting me ready to go to church. And then she heard on the radio that bombs were being dropped. The Japanese warplanes had invaded the islands, were dropping bombs all around us and everything. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Left Behind. My grandmother, great-grandmother, and great-great-grandmother were living together in Honolulu when Pearl Harbor was attacked on that day, which will live in infamy, December 7th, 1941. And in today's bonus episode, I'm sharing their story. Up to now, the only family member I've mentioned in the podcast is my great-grandfather, Al-Masam, who, as you know, inspired Left Behind. I never knew him. He died 20 years before I was born. But I did know his wife, my great-grandmother. Her name was Emily Hunt Psalm. But I've always known her as Mimi, so that's what I'm going to refer to her as in this episode, because calling her anything else is just weird for me. Mimi was an interesting, complex, larger-than-life woman. She was born in 1899 and died in 2003, so she literally experienced the entire 20th century. Just imagine that. Her father was the first in their San Francisco neighborhood to own an automobile. She remembers being in her San Francisco home during the 1907 earthquake and ensuing fires that destroyed half the city as well as experiencing the 1989 San Francisco earthquake. And she was living in Honolulu with her daughter and her mother when Pearl Harbor was attacked. She also learned to dance the Macarena in the late 90s, but that's a story for another day. Mimi herself agrees with my assessment of her life. She wrote, There seems to be little in the course of human experience that I've missed. In the mid-1980s, when she was in her mid-80s, Mimi wrote a memoir of her life up to that point. Mimi's memoir is long, like a thousand pages written on a typewriter. In it, she describes experiencing the bombings of Sunday, December 7, 1941, as well as life in Honolulu afterward. But before I dove into those thousand pages, I wanted to know what my grandmother Carol Mimi's daughter, who was almost 10 years old during the attacks, recalls about that day. Today, she's nearing 92 years of age and still lives on her own. So I rang her up. Do you remember being there when Pearl Harbor was attacked? Yes, vaguely. I was a very young little girl. Maybe I was about seven, I don't know. And my mother was ironing a dress for me, getting me ready to go to church. And then she heard on the radio that bombs were being dropped. The Japanese warplanes had invaded the islands, were dropping bombs all around us and everything. She also gave me some good life advice. Home-cooked meals are much better. So after speaking to my grandma, 
and stopping to cook and eat a wholesome home-cooked meal, I sat down with Mimi's memoir, where I found a surprise. In it was a letter and a portion of a diary written by Mimi's own mother, Edna Hunt, during the December 7th attacks and its aftermath. The result is that today, I bring to you the experiences of three eyewitnesses to the attacks on Hawaii, one written in the moment, one written four decades later, and one the memories of a young child recalled 80 years later. Also, the recordings that you hear are all women descended from Edna and Mimi. Mimi's words are read by one of her granddaughters, Valerie Scatina, Edna's by my cousin, Emily Herrenberg, and words uttered by my 10-year-old grandma, Carol, are spoken here by my own 10-year-old daughter. It's a story told through the words and voices of six generations of women in my family. Let's jump in. 42-year-old Mimi stayed out late on Saturday night, December 6th, playing bridge with some wives of other naval officers living in Honolulu. She lived not far from Waikiki Beach with her 10-year-old daughter, Carol, and 68-year-old mother, Edna. Mimi was in Honolulu waiting to sell for China, where she was to join her husband. So, after a raucous night of bridge, I snuggled down in bed and fell asleep counting the days I'd soon be China-bound. This would be the second time around for duty in the Orient for us. I could imagine the shrill whistles coming from the busy factories dotting the riverbanks as we came up the old Yangtze and again trying to dodge the big seagoing vessels on the move in the crowded Shanghai Harbor. She dreamed sweet dreams of her former trip to Shanghai until she was rudely awakened shortly after 8 a.m. Mama, oh mama, wake up. There were planes up in the sky dropping bombs on us. Oh mama. Shaken into wakefulness, upon opening my eyes, I looked up into the disturbed face of my little 10-year-old or bending over me. My wristwatch told me it was a few minutes past eight of what was to become a bewildering and tragic day. My happy-go-lucky dream had come to an abrupt ending forever, and that was how I was introduced into World War II. You may recall that my great-grandmother Carol remembered her mother ironing a dress when the news of Pearl Harbor came. I don't know how to account for the varying memories, except for the passage of time, so we'll just roll with it. Our radios were our information bureau during those first confused weeks, and we were told to keep them turned on at all times. This proved to be a very confusing situation for the radio was constantly blurring forth instruction after instruction, many of which were canceled almost in the next breath. Mama spent all morning huddled beside the radio scribbling the latest happenings to my sister in Oakland. Her main thought was to get the letter off on the next clipper. She was successful in this just before the censorship was put into action. Mama, of course, is Mimi's mother, Edna. And here's what Edna was scribbling to her other daughter. Honolulu, Sunday, December 7th, 1941. Dear Louise, our peaceful Sunday morning was rudely molested with bombing. They got through while our fleet were dozing. Live bombs fell just back of the Waikiki Theater. One house demolished. I believe they lived quite close, probably too close, to that theater. My grandmother Carol recalls that bombing near the theater vividly. I was awfully young and I didn't know really what was going on or anything. My mother didn't tell me much. She didn't want to get me frightened or anything like that. They bombed the Waikiki Theater. 
and we didn't live too far away from the Waikiki Theater, so we were lucky, weren't we? Let's go back to Edna's letter. 50 people were injured and seven killed in our district. We saw a regular dogfight in the sky about two hours ago. Parachutists came down at Barber's Point near Diamond Head. I believe the parachutists were killed. The final bomber of Rising Sun was shot down by our airship. An enemy sub is off by Coco Head and two other vessels at other points. All kinds of bombing and sirens going on. All kinds of orders given over the radio, such as call for doctors. All civilians remain home. No people or cars on streets or highways. Don't use telephone unless for an emergency. We are getting our news over the shortwave radio next door. A sampan is about to land at Navy Ammunition Plant, another landing party at Nanakuli, and off a little way are three Jap transports. We were told over the radio to be ready for a blackout instruction this evening. Some people are packing and will leave on any boat they can get. They will soon begin to evacuate the people, especially women and children. Did you catch that Edna was hearing reports of Japanese landing parties about to come ashore and larger transport ships waiting to land more forces? Today, we know that didn't happen. But, well, I'm sure you're all too familiar with what breaking news is like. Here's what my grandmother Carol remembers from that morning. She refers to Mimi. The only thing she heard on the radio for us not to go out, just to stay in our, in our places where we were. I remember that baby, my mother said we wouldn't be going any place to stay in. And then later on at that time, they had blackouts where they had shades. You pull your shades down and no lights could be seen. So the aircraft couldn't see lights and everything like that. So we just kind of sat tight and everything. They continued listening to confusing information and conflicting instructions coming through the radio. Edna seemed to write every shred of information she heard. One of our Pearl Harbor men in our neighborhood was called to work with all other male workers, and he has just returned and says the harbor is a shambles and five of our big warships torpedoed, lying in the bay, bottoms up. The governor house, the palace, bombed but not demolished. Over 400 army killed, 300 hospitalized. No count on Navy yet. There'll be big casualty lists there. They think higher than army. Well, the fright of noise and blackout is over and over our heads. Noise of planes. No schools open. Buildings will be used for hospitals as hospitals in town are inadequate for emergencies. Then the rumors started. Rumors that infuriated Mimi. Oh, those rumors. They just about drove us up the wall. Unprepared as we were, it was difficult and time-consuming to sift through information to learn what was truth and what was fiction. I recall the panic people experienced over Laiawe on the windy side of Oahu. Some motorist riding swiftly along the beach highway passed a cottage and saw a big sheet flapping in the wind. He tore back to town, scattering the awesome report that Jap parachutes were dropping. And then there was that suspicious couple who lived right next door to us. He was of German extraction who spoke broken English. Oh my, immediately as the war began, he was accused of operating some kind of complicated radio, receiving and sending mysterious messages, also secreted. At least such was rumored about the neighborhood. Edna doggedly continued recording the incoming news. All theaters are closed. 
local casualties are now well over 100. A bomb that fell killed a family of eight or nine. No transportation between islands, either boat or plane. Just heard an army transport was torpedoed 1,300 miles west of San Francisco. I hear Guam has been taken and flying the flag of the rising sun, taking over our fleet there. I hope it isn't true. From the bombing noise going on, we must be downing a few jabs. It's amazing to me how this letter reads almost like a breaking news bulletin. The attack on Pearl Harbor lasted about two hours, beginning at 7.55 a.m., and they withdrew shortly after 9 a.m. So it seems like these reports and information were just pouring in during the attack and in the hours that followed. And my great-great-grandmother Edna just sat by the radio and recorded everything. When the attack ended, life as Mimi, Carol, and Edna knew it was changed. Now, Pearl Harbor is about 20 miles away from Honolulu's Waikiki area, so they didn't see the carnage in the harbor or at the base. But suddenly, everything had changed for them. Mimi recounted, We were required to hassle with many frustrating routines in the early days of the war. First on the list were those beastly inoculations to ward off the anticipated epidemics that all wars are known to have. The health department of Honolulu was not going to be caught napping here. Our little trio, consisting of Mama Carolou and me, became part of the long line that formed to the left, where person by person we bared our arms. No one was immune. Then there came the day when all the citizens were ordered to assemble at one of the elementary schools. We were given gas masks and put through rudimentary drills in order to learn the trick of putting them on in a hurry. When we were all lined up there so camouflaged, gad, we resembled a bunch of jittery hogs in stockyard waiting slaughter. Mercy, we were ordered to carry those masks wherever we went. Suddenly, all the markets ran out of fresh meat. The situation really caused us clamor, and to multiply the shortage problem, construction and other war workers were arriving in droves on every mainland ship and this group could hardly be called vegetarians by any stretch of the imagination. They demanded meat and potatoes and the hell with vegetables, dearie. And Waikiki Beach itself became less of a paradise and more of a war zone. Most of the beaches of Waikiki were now sporting barbed wire fencing, yards and yards of the gleaming stuff. And pacing the span was always to be seen one lone army picket, possibly stationed there on patrol, to protect the populace should a Jap sub suddenly surface in our midst. I used to wonder just who the brass was who thought up these ridiculous posts. So many of these so-called orders of the day prove lopsided and time wasters. The wire barricade left little area for swimmers to frolic and shortly became so overcrowded that it became impossible to enjoy. Just one big community bathtub it proved to be. Yet it did have its humorous angle. Mama, of course, was thoroughly disgusted. However, eventually she did give us all a good laugh. Jammed in as usual, I heard Mama's clear soprano voice loud and clear above the din of the congested mob thrashing about us. Will someone please pass me the soap? My forebears were hilarious. That must be where I get my dry wit. At some point, Mimi received a letter from her husband Alma, whom she called Al, and who, of course, was enduring World War II in the Philippines. All the while, in between all this unnatural existence, my thoughts were concerned with what was transpiring in the Far East. I'd only received one cable from my husband from Manila immediately after the bombing. 
Following his cable, I did receive one brief letter postmarked Manila before that deadly curtain of silence was to fall. The situation was to remain the status quo for almost three agonizing years filled with nerve-wracking uncertainties. That one letter had so many gaps from sensor cutting that the missive looked like a paper hula skirt when I opened the envelope. At least the censors did leave my husband's signature to comfort me. One thing Alma wanted was for his wife and daughter to leave Hawaii. My grandmother Carol recalled. My father wanted us to get out there as fast as we could on the first sport steamer to take us back to the United States. But Mimi was never one to take orders from anyone. And instead... She waited for three months until the Navy forced her to leave in February 1942. Okay, so I guess she did take orders from the U.S. Navy. But even then, it was a close call whether she'd be a good little sailor and do as she was told. It was Thursday night at 12 midnight. I was awakened from a deep sleep by the persistent ringing of the phone. Answering, I recognized that it was from Naval Headquarters calling from Pearl Harbor. I was informed that transportation had been arranged for my mother, daughter, and myself, and that I was to report for departure that very day at a certain hour and at a certain pier, and our stateroom was such and such. I recall that I attempted to remonstrate, saying that I could not possibly, etc., and my job, etc., but I got nowhere at all. The voice became very terse and commanding, and so yes, I bowed to the orders and listened intently to the further instructions and accepted those verbal do's and don'ts. Prior to embarking, I was warned not to reveal to anyone my departure plans. Emphatically, I was told there was to be no leave-taking. By that, I think they were warning her to come, or else. So, she obeyed. The three women got a ride to Pearl Harbor's entrance, where they were stopped by guards who wouldn't let the car into the base. Mimi explained, I asked the guards if I might drive the car down and unload at the ship, but was refused point-blank. The soldiers were certainly pacing around at a very nervous rate, all right. They acted very hard-boiled indeed when Mother, thinking to relieve the tension, remarked coyly her willingness to help out on guard duty if the military needed a grandmother who was good at using a slingshot. Evidently, the soldiers' sense of humor had been scared plumb out of them by their new responsibility. Yeah, Edna is definitely where I get my love of the ridiculous from. Anyway, back to Mimi and her travel hardships. Yes, Mother Carolou and I staggered down those seemingly endless yards of dock, dragging our gear along as best we could and finally reached the ship. Upon boarding, a happy surprise awaited us. We had been assigned some of the best staterooms aboard and how we welcomed it. The ship left the next day from Pearl Harbor as part of a convoy of several transport ships taking civilians back to the United States mainland. One thing I didn't find in anyone's reminiscences is the story I recall hearing several times as a child of the passengers on the transport ship, which included many children on board, needing to remain extremely silent while passing out of Pearl Harbor in case Japanese submarines were patrolling the waters. The Navy wanted the ships to travel in as near silence as possible. Well, the three women's happiness with their staterooms wasn't long-standing. With the gentle motion of the ship at anchor, suddenly I began to feel queasy in a pit of my stomach. Perhaps I thought a brisk promenade around the deck would be in order and also relieve the monotony that began to descend upon me. I counted the turns this activity gave me. 
I had also the opportunity to learn who my next door neighbor might be. I almost went into shock when I discovered who it was. He was our first Japanese prisoner of war, Kazuo Sakamaki. Kazuo Sakamaki was skipper of a Japanese midget sub, and he had had a really bad day on December 7, 1941. A later Newsweek article by Bernard Krischer explained. Hours before the attack on Pearl Harbor, five mini-subs were released from the conventional subs, which had carried them piggyback-style from Japan. Immediately, Sakamaki was in trouble. First, it was the ballast, and he and his crewmen had to crawl about for hours adjusting lead weights and filling water tanks. Then, they discovered they were heading away from the harbor. Their gyroscope was not working. Desperately, they got the boat turned around and made their way to the mouth of the harbor, only to be spotted by two U.S. destroyers. The sub shuddered, hit by at least one depth charge. But Sakamaki managed to retreat to temporary safety. Then, as they heard the bombs exploding over the harbor, the craft hit a reef. That night, unable to rendezvous with the mother sub, they set a charge to blow up their craft and abandon ship. The fuse fizzled out, Sakamaki's crewmen drowned, and Sakamaki was washed to the shore to become the first Japanese prisoner of war. Sakamaki's presence is definitely something my grandmother Carol recalls. Right outside the door was a Japanese prisoner, and he was outside in a chair sitting there smoking, and he was guarded by the Americans, and they treated him just like he was a dear friend and everything like that. And I know my mother and grandmother thought that was terrible. He was given all this wonderful treatment like nothing ever happened. So my mother and grandmother were disgusted how uh, our men treated him like he was just a friend of theirs. So we didn't walk on that, that deck. We just walked on the deck below. I do remember that. To say Mimi and Edna were disgusted with the POW's presence is perhaps an understatement. But it wasn't just Sakamaki's presence and treatment. It was the young girls asking for his autograph. The Oriental prisoner was a good-looking, well-set-up Japanese with the bearing of the better class. There were, among the passengers, a number of simpering, autograph-seeking young women who attempted to coax our guards into procuring the prisoner's autograph. I do not know how you dears might feel about this sort of thing. When those young women were in quest of the Jap POW signature, there was a war just begun, and we had most cruelly been set upon in a sneak attack. 1,100 of our best young American men had just been entombed forever in 40 feet of water and ooze at the bottom of Pearl Harbor, the USS Arizona. And so a short time later, with paper and pen handing, fawning at the open doorway of the alien Jap prisoner stood these little fools. Oh my, I was so indignant by this callousness that I voiced my opinion loudly as I went by the group. I accused them of having ice water in their veins instead of red blood. I can totally hear Mimi saying this. She always spoke her mind. Another trait I think I inherited. Other than an uncomfortable neighbor, the trip to San Francisco was uneventful. And this wouldn't be Mimi's or Edna's or Carol's final farewell to Hawaii. When the war was over, they each returned, many times. Mimi wrote, Whenever I'm in Honolulu, I drive out to Pearl. The Arizona Memorial has been resting in the same spot now for over 40 years, 
and when I view this site, my bitterness returns. I've always been for fair play, and in this instance, I've never been able to turn the other cheek. More than 2,200 persons died when 353 Jap planes attacked Pearl Harbor and nearby military installations on December 7, 1941. At least 1,100 men were aboard the USS Arizona that Sunday morning when it was sunk in the harbor. 18 ships, including four battleships, were sunk or damaged, and 316 planes were either destroyed or damaged. Japanese losses totaled less than 100 men, 29 planes, and five midget subs. The Arizona sits in 38 feet of water and 40 feet of mud. The red-orange buoys mark its bow and stern. They are 608 feet apart. Standing above the sunken Arizona, encasing her once proud complement of flowering manhood, I think that I was there in Hawaii at the Holocaust. And your grandfather was shortly to become a POW for 33 long and chilling months under the thumb of the Japanese. As a result of his treatment, I was to become an early widow. When recently I saw on television where those Japanese Americans who are placed in concentration camps here in the U.S. are to receive remuneration for their imprisonment, I feel there's something not quite just somehow. Mimi wasn't the only one to feel this way. During the mid-1980s, the U.S. government began making monetary compensations to former Japanese internees, a move that I personally respect and do think appropriate. However, that move didn't sit well with former American POWs who had been attacked by Japanese air and ground forces starting less than 12 hours after Pearl Harbor. Among them were Lester Tenney from Episode 2 and Robert Aldrich from Episode 29, who both waged public legal battles in the 1980s to receive some kind of apology or monetary recompense for their time as POWs. The attacks in Hawaii have always overshadowed the experiences of the men and women in the Philippines and other Pacific Islands, who were, that same day, thrust into an active, ongoing war zone. And they would continue to be overshadowed, first by the war in Europe, and then by post-war peace negotiations with Japan. A peace treaty with Japan specifically stated there would be no monetary recompense for the Americans imprisoned and so mistreated and abused by Japanese captors. Thus, none of the POW lawsuits against Japan succeeded, struck down in U.S. courts. But the fight for POW recognition and remembrance continues today, through the work of many individuals and organizations. Among them, the Philippine Scout Heritage Society, which seeks to preserve the legacy of the U.S. Army's Philippine Scouts for present and future generations, and the American Defenders of Bataan and Corregidor Memorial Society, which is dedicated to promoting education about the POW experience in the Pacific during World War II and supporting programs of reconciliation. In the show description, you can find links to both of these organizations' websites so that you can learn more about their work. On this solemn Pearl Harbor Day, while remembering and honoring the men and women killed that day, I hope you will also take a moment to consider the men and women in the other parts of the Pacific on December 7th, whose sacrifices and experiences have so long been overshadowed by World War II's other moments. This is Left Behind. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about my family's Pearl Harbor story on the Left Behind Facebook page and website and on Instagram at Left Behind Podcast. The links are in the show description. Left Behind is researched, written, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Emily Herrenberg, Reagan Harmon, and Valerie Scatina. And I'll be back next time with the story of an army nurse who escaped Corregidor's nightmare only to come face to face with something worse. Mm-hmm.